Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 37, where we interview Kyle Renke. So there were a few things that kind of pushed us over the edge to make a change. The first being that we were just, as Dave Ramsey says, sick and tired of being sick and tired. We were just pushing ourselves emotionally, uh, obviously financially, even spiritually, just we were drained and we were kind of redlining it the whole time. And we just didn't have the, the margin or the reserve to really kind of focus on, on what we wanted to do. It's time for a new American dream. One that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench. I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? Scott, I am having an awesome day. It's beautiful outside. It's about 85 degrees and just feels awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited to interview Kyle. I mean, what a fantastic episode we have coming up today. I love his story. Uh, we got connected with with Kyle through David Green, who is the new co-host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. And David said, you know, this guy has a really great story. I talked to him like, this guy has a really great story. I want to get him on the show. We have been going back and forth and I'm so excited that today we finally connected and had an opportunity to have him on the show. I just, I love what he talks about. The focus of his show is it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You can still turn your finances around and move towards financial independence. He's 34 years old, so he's not a spring chicken like you. But he's also not super old like me. But he had made some choices that weren't the best financially. He accumulated some student loan debt, some credit card debt, and decided one day, you know what? This isn't what I want to do anymore. Yep. I mean this this episode is applicable to you if you consider yourself a middle-class American person, right? I mean he, he earned a middle-class, maybe slightly upper-middle-class income in California, his family, uh, for a couple of years, had a very low savings rate as a result of a large number of liabilities. You know, Rich Dad talks about uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the book, uh, which has been referenced a ton of times. And we assume that you listeners have read. If not, you should probably go read that. But, you know, we talk about accumulating liabilities. That's what he did. He accumulated a lot of liabilities in the form of student loan debt, house payment, car payment, all this kind of stuff. And then he one by one knocked these out and began saving on the path to financial independence and is chugging along. I mean, it's just a great story that's applicable to everybody that's a middle-class American with a family. Yeah. You were saying, oh, this is applicable to you if you're, and I'm like, American. America is a culture of debt. You got to have the latest thing. You, You need to buy, 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 buy. So this is a really great show for just about anybody. And something else you just said, really inspired me. You said, oh, if you haven't read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you should. You know, we have these famous four questions. And the first one is, what is your favorite finance book? So I'm going to ask the readers, or I'm sorry, I'm going to ask the listeners, what is your favorite finance book? Send me an email, money at biggerpockets.com. And just tell me what your favorite finance book is. Let's start a list of all these books that people talk about. Today, specifically, Kyle gives us a book that I've never heard before. So I want to know, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yes, everybody but me loved it. Richest Man in Babylon, I love that too. But not everybody has read either of those books. So first, read those two books and then send me your favorite book. Awesome. Okay. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. 
Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors. But if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. Kyle Renke, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going today? It's going great. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Thank you for being here. Um, let's start from the beginning. Can you walk us through kind of where your journey with money begins? Sure. So I'm going to run it back about a decade here because I want to give you a little bit of context. But uh, I graduated in 2006 with my bachelor's degree in English. Uh, I was newly married, and uh, my wife and I moved down to Southern California to pursue my dream of becoming a college basketball coach. Uh, we had empty pockets, no money in our savings, no assets, and about $15,000 in student loans. My wife enrolled in nursing school at that time at the same university that I was working at. And I also started pursuing a master's degree. So we took out about another $25,000 in student loans at that time. Well, within about a year of being at that coaching job, uh, my boss, the head coach, ended up getting fired, which meant that as a result, because I'm the assistant coach, I got fired as well. So kind of at that point, I made an internal decision with myself to really start pursuing safety and security in terms of my career choice instead of uh, pursuing kind of my passions and my dreams, which can obviously be in a more unpredictable course. So at that point, my wife and I, we moved back up to Northern California. I found an entry-level tech job to put her through nursing school. And during this time, things were tight. We were living paycheck to paycheck, never really gave much thought to saving or investing 
the focus was just to get my wife through nursing school. Our student loans, we they were either alternating between being in deferment or paying the minimums. But I still kind of had that entrepreneurial burn, the kind of drive to want to do something different than just kind of sitting in a cubicle all day. So during that time, I actually taught myself to write code and developed a software business where it actually, we, we secured contracts with different athletic programs throughout the U.S., including Stanford, University of Florida. And it was right at about that time where it, it could have gone well, but this time around, I was more afraid of failure because of the consequences of the last time I took a risk. So I was less inclined to step out and do something challenging this time around. So Instead, I hedged my bets and I did what I thought was smart and I went and pursued another graduate degree, this time taking out about $42,000. And I ended up getting a degree in speech language pathology, which is what I do today, because that's a much more predictable career path and straightforward in terms of the income that you make. Eventually, my wife finished her degree in nursing. We purchased a home. I graduated with my degree in speech pathology. And at last, we could kind of, we felt like we could have that stability and security that we were looking for. So a couple of years later, our son was born. And like most other people our age, we decided for our growing family, we need to buy a bigger house. So we upgraded our house and we basically doubled the size of our square footage, which pretty much doubled the size of our mortgage as well. And then we also needed, because it was a new construction home, we needed, felt like we needed a nice big backyard with a really nice fire pit and, and all the amenities. And so we took out about a $12,000 line of credit to uh, build that backyard. So uh, we're both working full time, living in this nice new house. We were probably spending about $2,800 a month on our mortgage, $1,200 in student loans, uh, just paying the minimums, $1,500 in daycare. And we were just so busy and so exhausted, both working full time. We didn't even have time to cook. So we were probably spending $1,000 a month eating out. And we did this for about 18 months with our son at home. And we just found ourselves stressed, exhausted, deeply in debt, very little margin at the end of each month. And uh, we just didn't have any extra time or energy to, to pursue what we were passionate about. So it was at that point that we knew we needed to make a change. So what we did was we sold our house, we downsized to a smaller rental, started budgeting. My wife actually dropped her hours at work to spend more time at home, and we made large payments towards our student loans with some of the equity that we had and started focusing on long-term goals instead of um, kind of short-term goals of just making it month to month. So right now we're in a smaller home, uh, but we are in a position where we're able to save and invest much more each month with my wife working two to three days a week instead of full time. And we have we now have much more flexibility and freedom currently to help us pursue our long term goals. So we did this, made this change about three years ago, and the last three years have been a huge difference for us. Okay, so that there was a lot there, and we're gonna have to dive into this chunk by, <laughs> chunk, by chunk to go through kind of each kind of major piece. Yes, here. so many themes. So it's pretty clear from the first part of it, where you're in school, you graduate from that first job, and you're starting to put your wife through uh, nursing school. Let's fast forward, perhaps, to right around when you bought that first house, or about to have a, a child. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what was your position like then? How much total debt do you have? And how much total income is coming in? And what is your kind of mindset at that point in time? So at about that time, we had about 
50,000 in student loans, but I also during that time took out an additional 42,000. So we were right at our max of about 90,000 in student loans. And our income was my wife had just started nursing school and she was making about 72,000 a year. And I was at about 20,000 a year. I was still actually working part-time at the university where I got my graduate degree. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that you had a software company. You or you worked at a software company. Did you own the company? You had talked about entrepreneurial. I, yep. I created it. So I, I literally taught myself to code. I, I have no computer science background, but I saw a need for something within the sports realm and created a software program that actually allows coaches to communicate with their teams. And this was back in, in 2005, 2006, when you know, mass text messaging wasn't really a big thing back then. And so it was a platform in the cloud where coaches could communicate with their team. So I had no idea what I was doing in terms of building this thing. I partnered with a former Major League Baseball player, Division One bas- or baseball coach, and he was able to help kind of you put his name on the product and market this thing. But I had no idea what I was doing in terms of uh, building a business, marketing, selling, that kind of thing. So what I want to ask is, Why was your mindset at this point in time that, you know, this is a risk. It's a risk to go start this business on the side, you know, while you're making $20,000 a year. Why were you able to take that risk at that point in time mentally, you think? Yeah. So at that point in time, it didn't feel like a risk as I was building it because I I had nothing to lose with, with the exception of time, just putting my time into this thing. It felt like a risk when it started to grow and it started to be something that could potentially do well. And it was at that point that I was afraid to actually take that risk and jump into that more of a full-time position rather than just kind of letting it sit and be small like it it was. Okay. So I'm sorry, I'm confused here. Were you working on this full-time or did you work on this full-time? I worked on it on the side. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so it wasn't really a risk. It was a kind of a side, a side project more. It was a side, yep, totally side project for sure. Okay. So you, it sounds like what, what I'm trying to get at is during this period of time, you're making these decisions, you're accumulating debt, you're basically buying yourself into large expenses. You know, rich dad would say you're accumulating liabilities, uh, like the, right. the middle class, right? And your, uh, your tolerance for risk is dropping. You're not pursuing your dreams as a result. You're hedging your bets in this period of time. Is that a fair kind of statement or assessment of that? Very fair. And that's a result of the decisions that you're making one by one across this period of maybe five, seven, ten years. Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah, it was about a seven-year run where um, I was truly afraid to take risk. I was pursuing more of stability, security, and perfection, to be honest. I was afraid to fail. I was afraid that if I failed, it would define kind of me for the rest of my life and that um, I would kind of be stuck in that perpetual state forever. Yeah, awesome. So, so the reason I want to get at that is because there's a shift coming in your story. It sounds like uh, later on. Right. So let's let's fast forward now to the point where you have your peak spending, right? And I was writing down the numbers as fast as I could as you were saying them just there. But you mm-hmm. had twenty eight hundred on mortgage, twelve hundred on student loans, fifteen hundred on daycare, and a thousand a month or more in food. So just between those four categories, is that four? Yeah, those four categories. Yep. You're talking about mm-hmm. sixty five hundred dollars per month in expenses. What was your income like at that point for your for your household? So we were netting about ninety two hundred a month, and we were spending about eighty nine hundred dollars a month. Oh, so you're saving three hundred dollars a month? Good job. Thank you. Yeah, at least we weren't in the <laughs> negative. 
<laughs> well, and that's a really good that's a really good point. You know, there are people who make what did you say ninety six hundred dollars, ninety two hundred dollars a month, and they're spending ninety five hundred dollars a month. I mean, there's yeah, very true. you know this is better than some. And so I'm assuming that a large chunk of that uh, rest of that uh, that money that you're that's not being accounted for here is in transportation and fun and all that kind of stuff. Is that right? Exactly. That's right. Okay. So what, yeah, what were you doing with that three hundred dollars per month? Was that going into savings? Is that going down to pay down the the debt or? You know what? I think it was just sitting there and not really doing. We were just happy to have like a little bit of a buffer, so we didn't overdraw on our account. Gotcha. Okay. And so, so if this is the point I think that is really relevant to a lot of people. I think there's a lot of people out there who are in this position or similar one right now. And, and I don't think yours is, I don't think this is extreme at all. This is what a lot of people would say. This is a, a normal way to approach your life and accumulate assets, yep. but you're completely stuck. You can't go anywhere, right? You're saving less than, you know, 3% of your take home pay in there. And so you're, you know, not even close. There's no possible way of accelerating toward financial freedom from this point for a lot, as a lot of people's thought processes. What happened? What was, what was the mindset shift that came in to trigger you deciding, hey, this is not the right way to go about it. I'm going to make some drastic changes here. So there were a few things that kind of pushed us over the edge to make a change. The first being that we were just, as Dave Ramsey says, sick and tired of being sick and tired. We were just pushing ourselves emotionally, uh, obviously financially, even spiritually, just we were drained and we were kind of redlining it the whole time. And we just didn't have the the margin or the reserve to really kind of focus on on what we wanted to do. So that was one of the big game changers. Another one is a really good friend of mine, David Green, who was on Bigger Pockets Money episode 12. He's been a big influence. He's him and I grew up playing basketball together. And he kind of planted a seed in me, not necessarily him just telling me what to do, but just me as his friend watching the kind of the seeds that he planted along the way, starting small and really seeing the potential of starting small and working towards something big and making a huge change and that it is possible and that you don't necessarily have to um, work a thousand hours a week to do it. And so him and I had many discussions where um, he basically kind of mentored me in a sense and coached me in moving in the right direction. Awesome. So it was between kind of these did you hear about Dave Ramsey in addition to this or was this mostly – this is mostly David Green and then maybe a couple of other sources corroborating that? Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. It was just kind of different people in our life. So David was one of them and he had heard of Dave Ramsey and so he kind of turned me on to that. And so I, I definitely listened to Dave Ramsey a lot and then just uh, picking up different financial books at that point, wanting to learn and kind of feeling like it was something that I could actually – that I could actually do because that was my fear is that – this isn't just like every other fear that I had that I would fail. This was an area where I thought I could potentially fail too. And so I was afraid to actually make a change at first too. And, and what year was this? What year would you, did you kind of decide to do this? And then let's walk through the changes one by one that you made to reduce that, those expenses. So we made this change in, uh, at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. Okay, awesome. And so what does that look like? What's the timeline of the reduction in expenses here and the downsizing your house? So we were in that house for about a year and a half. It was a new construction home. The best kind of decision we made was let's get rid of this house. Um, it had a huge mortgage. We looked at our expenses and that was actually the first kind of the biggest thing for us was downsizing this house, getting rid of that $2,800 a month. We asked ourselves, what if uh, we could cut this in half 
look at the extra money we would have each month to be able to, to kind of move forward. So that's the first thing we did was we sought out a real estate agent, figured out we could sell the house and we did have some equity in the house. So we knew that we could use that equity to pay off a big chunk of our debt as well, particularly the, the consumer debt. That's the stuff we wanted to get rid of first because of the high interest rates. What year did you purchase the house? And then what year did you sell the house? Good question. So we purchased our first house in 2012. And we had some equity in that and rolled that over into our second house. That's the big one. And that we sold that one in 2015. Oh, I'm sorry. And we, we actually bought that, the first house in 2010. My son was born in 2012. Okay, awesome. So you bought yeah. the house in 2015. You sold it 18 months later in 2016. Correct. Okay. Okay. And then you use the equity there to pay off your student loan debt or a big portion thereof? Yeah, we had about $60,000 in equity, so we couldn't quite pay it all off, but we took a big portion of, I don't think we used all the equity, but we took most of it and threw it at um, a big chunk of our student loans. Okay, nice. and what, did, what did you do to live? Did you go, you went back to renting or did you buy another place? We actually chose to rent, and the reason we chose to rent is for us, it made more financial sense to kind of take that step backwards as opposed to getting into a slightly higher mortgage. The, the prices have been rising in California. California for homes. So we're actually taking advantage of kind of the higher wages in California, but we're also staying at a smaller, smaller rent. I wouldn't say that's a step backwards. I'd say it's a sidestep so that you can get the rest of your portfolio in order, the rest of your finances in order so that you can continue to move forward, like you said. So until somebody finally phrased the question in such a way that really made me think, should I rent or should I buy? Oh, you should always buy. No, you shouldn't always buy. Buying in the Bay Area, buying in New York City, buying in these super expensive areas may not be the best choice for you. Yes, you're missing out on the appreciation. You can't guarantee there's going to be appreciation. And you're trading this you know, potential for appreciation for possibly a lower rent price. In my local area, I can't buy a house for a mortgage that is going to be more than I can rent the house out for, or there's going to be less than I can rent the house out for. It's usually about what what I can rent. Okay, this is getting confusing. I'm sorry. I think like the point you're making though is that just renting a place can be more efficient than buying a place So, or than, than paying down a mortgage. What was your mortgage in a, and at this home was $2,800 per month. What was the rent you paid when you moved? 1280 1280. So now, you know, you're like, you're saving $1,600 or $1,500 a month in cash outflows. Yes, some of that was going to mortgage and loan am amortization on your home. And yes, you had the possibility of benefiting from appreciation. But are you benefiting $1,500 a month on average in that appreciation when you could be investing that difference in the stock market or in real estate? I don't know. I think there's a strong case to be made when the numbers are that skewed that you made the correct decision and one that's going to accelerate you toward financial freedom much faster by downsizing and renting. Right. Yeah, and I and think I it's hard to make that argument on the other side. Oh, you should have kept your house. No, you're saving this money and you're paying off your debt immediately. At some point, you're going to have to pay off your debt. The longer you have it, the more it's going to cost you. Right. And I would also add too that what it did for us was it allowed my wife to cut down her hours in half. And now she's able to stay at home more. And it gave us, it actually gave us more kind of reserve and energy ourselves. So we're not both burning out. And how much money did you save on childcare costs when your wife is staying home half the time? You were paying, what was it? $1,500 a month in childcare. Yeah. And now you're paying what? 700? 
Yeah, about it comes out to about 800, 880. Yeah. Okay. Still another significant chunk of change that is not going out of your pockets that exactly. can still come out of your pockets and go towards paying down other debt. So you just created $2,200 a month in additional savings or at least lower lower expenses with this move. Absolutely. Yep. And how much of the salary when your wife cut her hours in half, how much less money was she bringing in then? Was she bringing in half as much? I mean, that makes so sense. At her ho- yeah. So at her highest, she was making about 108000 a year. And then she dropped down to about 72,000 uh, the next year. And then in 2016, when we had our second child, she dropped down to about 20,000 because she stayed home uh, with our, our daughter for a good six months. And that's another thing that it gave us was it gave us freedom for her to stay home. And we didn't have to take out any money from credit cards just to survive for her to stay home. So it gave us that flexibility on that side as well. Yeah. And there's a big offset there against the childcare expenses as well, right? Which is coming into play. Yep, absolutely. And they're pretty high here in California. Yeah. (laughs) So what was your income during this time? What were you doing for a job? You had mentioned uh, working for your software company and you had mentioned working for your old college. Correct. So what I was making early on when I was putting my wife through nursing school, I was making um, at tops about $27,000 to $30,000 a year. I wasn't taking any salary from the the software business that I started. It was all just kind of blood, sweat, and tears and time that was put into that thing. We did keep a lot of the money in the bank. And then when we eventually closed down the company, I took a portion of that. I think it ended up being about ten dollars or $12,000. And this was probably two years ago that I we took that money and just threw that towards loans. But at, at the top, uh, I've been ranging about 100000 a year. Okay. And what do you do for work right now? So, and that's working as a speech language pathologist right now. Um, oh, I work in a medical setting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that, and when did you get your degree in speech path? So I got my degree in 2012. 2012. Okay. Mm-hmm. And are, you're a full-time speech pathologist. So I do that full time. And actually, I recently dropped down uh, from working five days a week to four days a week, 32 hours a week, again, because it gives me more freedom and flexibility now to kind of focus on kind of my entrepreneurial pursuits. So uh, now I'm actually working a few days a week with David Green as a real estate agent. Awesome. Ah, Real estate agent comes into play or real estate comes in. (laughs) Going back just a step. So we talked sure. about the child care and housing expense. Were there any other changes that you noticed as well? Did your food budget drop during this period or how, anything else going on that allowed you to, to say, spend less as a family? That's a great question, Scott. So I would say one of the biggest things that we did, and you hear this a lot, is we actually started doing a budget. Believe it or not, it actually works. And we did the Dave Ramsey or, you know, I don't think Dave Ramsey came up with it. I think it was some grandmother that came up with it, but we came up with, we did the envelopes. Um, And for us, we didn't do envelopes for every single line item in our budget, but we did do envelopes specifically for the areas where we kind of have the high expenses, where we tend to spend more, which for us is groceries, any kind of dining out or weekend trip, weekend getaway. And so using the envelope system has also uh, been a great thing to kind of keep us on track. Nice. And the envelope system, for those who aren't aware, is basically you just write down on an envelope what your budget is for you know, groceries for the month and you put in cash into this envelope, right? Or you literally write down the amount of money you're going to put in to those categories in these envelopes. That way you can kind of control your spending a little better. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. And one, I will add one other thing that we did do was we were paying about 120 a month for our uh, satellite TV, and we actually decided to cut that out completely and uh, now do everything. We've uh, we cut the cord, as they say, and now we do everything just kind of – we don't even do Netflix because um, we don't want to pay the money for it. We just either watch what's kind of what's free and what you can kind of stream for free online, and, and that's been a big thing as well. Awesome. Yeah. So what did you, when you did the envelope system, what would you say kind of your, what do you estimate kind of your net spending outside, you know, in the categories that you're walking, using the envelopes for dropped to, or what was the total savings that you kind of got from that system? So just by actually budgeting and opening and taking a look at it and sticking to it, obviously it fluctuates every month. Um, I reckon that we probably saved an extra six or $700 a month just from that. Awesome. So we're almost, we're talking about almost three thousand dollars a month in after-tax cash flow generation that you that you produce over a maybe a year and a half long period as you kind of discover FI and begin making these decisions to move yourself intentionally towards it. Big decisions, life-changing decisions, where you live, right? Like what you're kind of doing with your lifestyle. You know how how you're managing childcare. These are things that a lot of people that are are in the position you were in a few years ago consider fixed expenses that they can't change, and that you did it. And it's you know, are you, I guess the question is, are you happier, or were you happier in light of making these decisions? How did that affect what your friends say, your family? <laughs> So it's crazy. So we got a little bit of a mix, right? I maybe had some coworkers that thought we were crazy, that we were leaving our big, beautiful house and moving into. So we moved just so so you can kind of get an illustration of what we did. We moved from about a 2,500 square foot house to a small two bed, two bath um, halfplex under a thousand square feet. I think it's 920 square feet. And there's four of us living in here now. Uh, and we love it. We're, we're close. We're closer now as a result. Uh, I think my wife wants to get out of here eventually, right? Uh, we're, we're growing and the kids are getting bigger and we need a little bit more space eventually. But we are much more happier here than we were when we lived in our big comfy house. And it's it's given us more freedom and the ability to do things. And we've also had friends that, you know, patted us on the back and said, that's a great you guys made a great decision. So we've got a little bit of mix, too, in, in terms of what um, people think and how they perceive us. And my wife was just talking to me about this morning. She said, you know, she kind of had to eat humble pie. It was kind of embarrassing that we moved into this new construction home. And a year and a half later, we're, we're packing up and leaving. So it was definitely a humbling experience for us as well. I, I think it's a tremendous amount of courage and intelligence and boldness to go through that process. I mean, that house is what's eating most of middle-class America alive right now. Most of the people in this country are stuck because of that house and the expenses that come come with it. Like all of your effort as a family went to, financially, went to working these jobs at the highest possible salaries that you could possibly earn, a total optimization on the salaried front for both you and your wife. And you had no other choice but to continue doing that until you made these. You made this, that big decision in conjunction with the other ones, and now the savings are accelerating. So, what's your position? I guess what's your position look like now as a result of these changes, and what's going on in your life today? So, our position has changed. I wrote the numbers down here. Uh, net worth in twenty fifteen, I think we were at negative fifteen thousand dollars, and today it's uh, as of I think a couple of days ago it's one thirty nine in the positive, and uh, that has set us up to move in a direction that we never 
honestly thought was possible when we were living at our big house. And so for us moving forward, we have, we kind of have a couple goals. The first goal is we obviously want to stay for a down payment to get into a house where we can live in as a family, but we're also saving and working hard towards a first down payment on a property as well. A lot of the money that we do have, the assets are in index funds, but we've kind of slowed that down and I've more focused on accumulating cash for down payment on the real estate side thing. I obviously, as you know, bigger pockets is something that I definitely follow. And it really has changed my perspective on real estate investing. Uh, I'll just give you a, a little example. When David first got into real estate investing, I thought he was crazy. Uh, he had his first, I think it was his second house that he bought. And uh, he would uh, he would occasionally, this was when he was still managing his properties, he would occasionally ask me to come help him do some kind of side project in the backyard to make fix it up, make it nice. And there was this bush that we could not get out. And we were out there for like eight <laughs> hours in 100 degree weather trying to pull this dang bush out. We hooked up a, his dad's truck to a, a big old chain and tried to pull it out. We never got that thing out. So finally, David's like, that's it. I'm hiring a professional. So I really wasn't turned on to real estate investing. I thought, he's crazy. He's wasting his time. And But now kind of seeing the firsthand um, experience watching David and the growth he's made and then obviously being part of the Bigger Pockets community, seeing the growth that other people are making really has inspired both me and my wife to kind of head down that path. Awesome. Uh, just to kind of piggyback on that story about getting a bush out, I had the same problem at my house, uh, the duplex where I live. I spent an afternoon trying to remove a stump that was right next to the house just with an axe going after it. Get sore, sweaty, and working without a shirt on. And I guess my pants were hanging down a little low. So I got this incredible <laughs> sunburn that was all <laughs> along my back and like halfway through – my butt. Uh, so anyways, that was a nice picture. Everyone now oh has that God. image in their heads. You're welcome. Let's move back to uh, talking about finance and real estate. No, <laughs> I, I remember have that. a story really quick. <laughs> I took out two bushes and like four trees in my house and I did it with a chainsaw and you get the stump as low as you can go. You paint it with gasoline on the top to kill the rest of it. And then you cover it in dirt. Next time you need help getting a stump out, call me, Scott. I'll help you. I do know all the tricks. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Um, so I want to go back to your wife who had to eat humble pie and move out of this brand new build. No, anybody who cares is not a true friend and it doesn't matter, uh, what they think about you. You have to do what's best for your own personal self, your, your family, your, you know, your finances and your situation. And one of my favorite quotes is from Coco Chanel. She was so sassy. She's, she's a fashion designer for those of you who don't know who Coco Chanel is, Scott. And she said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't think about you at all. I love that quote. I tell my daughter that all the time who's going through middle school and all of the pain that goes through that. I hear Coco Uh, Chanel's products are very FI friendly. uh, Yeah, yeah. Every financial independence person that I know Uh, is uh, totally wearing Coco (laughs) Chanel. She's uh, quite quite pricey. (laughs) Anyway, so that that long segue or that long uh, rant off onto the wrong road. 
you know, time and again, we hear from our guests that real estate has either contributed to or even been the impetus behind their financial independence. So you talked about you are starting to work with David Green and getting your real estate license. You're saving up for your a down payment on what kind of property? Is it going to be an investment property? Is it going to be a property for you to live in? And then are where are you putting that cash while you're saving it? So uh, most of our cash right now is just going into a savings account. And what we're focusing on is we kind of have two paths where we're headed. Um, we're, we're definitely focused on uh, a down payment for, for a house that we can live in because uh, my wife just – she won't be able to stay here forever. And so that's a big thing for us. And then we also have another kind of bucket that we're we're also putting money into. And uh, that's going to be for um, our first investment property. And where that's going to be, I'm not sure yet. Probably out of state because uh, I know the out-of-state expert. And the biggest thing for me really is how much I'm going to learn between the time that it takes me to start saving now versus when I actually make that purchase decision, which is why I've gotten into real estate, uh, which is why I got my license, which is why I'm really trying to come at this with a learner's heart and a learner's brain in a sense and just absorb as much as I can before it comes time to pull the trigger. Yeah, I, I love it. That that initial period of saving for that first significant investment, which it's, it sounds like your your process right now is how do I accumulate cash to make my first significant investment or set of investments in your yep. next home purchase and then your first real estate process. Like that's a that's a process. That's a grind. It's like a year. Yes. You know, maybe two. You know, maybe longer depending on what your savings rate is and how big of that you want that investment to be. The obvious thing to do in that time period is to continue saving, continue earning, and learn and ed- self-educate as much as you possibly can to give yourself the highest possible odds of success, which I, I don't know. I just love that mindset going into that grinding process. Yeah, totally, and that's the thing. And and so for us in terms of saving, our saving kind of fluctuates every month um, because my wife, I call her the X factor because my I have I work at kind of a set salary right now. And so she kind of can, she can up or down her hours depending on what's going on with our family. And so she really is our X factor in terms of whatever extra income we get is from her working extra shifts. And so she's really been fired up about this the last six or seven months. So she's been picking up a ton of extra shifts. And so all that extra money that we accumulate, we just throw it into the savings account. Yeah. And getting your spouse on board is one of the best ways to reach financial independence. Because when your spouse is fighting you or when your spouse is not cooperative, you're going to have a way worse time. And money is the number one thing that spouses fight about. So having them on board and, you know, how did you get your wife on board? Is this a conversation that you had? Did you show her one thing? Was she already on board? Was she more savvy, more spendy? She got me on board, to be honest. Oh. Yeah. So she. Um, Why are we talking to you? Let's talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the expert. No, um, you know, it, honestly, it was us both sitting down and talking about what our goals were individually, but also what our goals were going to be as a as a couple, as a married couple, and as a family. And sitting down and talking about our core values and where we want to be in five years, where we want to be in ten years, where we want to be in twenty years. And then aligning those values with each other to determine, okay, how are we going to get there? That's the biggest thing. If you and your spouse can necessarily be focused on the bottom line, but what the goal is or what it is that you guys have um, as your core values, 
that is what, to me, what drives productivity and what drives and increases that savings rate. So the more we talk about what we actually care about and what, where we want to be, that's to kind of keep pushing forward and, and doing the best for our family. Awesome. So Kyle, do you and your wife track your spending? Do you use your budget instead of actually writing it down? Or this is the number one thing that we hear from people over and over again is you have to track your spending. Did you start tracking your spending totally. or did you just go to the budget? Okay. Let's look at how that, how that worked for you guys. So what worked for us was we definitely watched our budget. So we use Mint mostly to track our spending. And what Katie and I have is we have a monthly kind of financial meeting that we have. And she's not always, she's not the spreadsheet geek like I am. So she doesn't like to sit down and necessarily talk about it, but she's actually gotten a lot better at it. And so what we'll do is we'll actually sit down and we will discuss how we did that month. How was our performance? What percentage were we over or under in a certain area? And what we can do better the next month to kind of improve that budget area. Uh, again, the areas where we tend to have the most trouble, which is why we do the envelope system is kind of eating out or kind of entertainment, grocery shopping, that kind of thing. But what we'll also do is we'll kind of, we have a monthly balance sheet where we look at our assets and our liabilities and what direction those are headed at as well. Kind of review that. So we look at kind of our short-term goals, how we're doing on that. And then we also look at kind of the big picture item as well. How are we doing overall as a, as a budget? And that's where we can kind of have that open communication and uh, talk about any issues that might be coming up. Okay. So what I hear from you and what I hear over and over and over again from almost every guest we talk to is couples who are on the same page are constantly talking about money. And I, constantly is not the right word. Continually talking about money. You have monthly money dates. You have monthly balance sheet meetings. Hiding your head, hiding your finances, not like doing the ostrich thing, that's not going to get you down the path to financial independence. Does everybody want to talk about $90,000 in student loan debt? No, but not talking about it doesn't make it go away. Paying it down makes it go away. Talking about it keeps it in your head. You're like, okay, now I really got to get this out of here. I have to pay this down. I can't stand having this debt anymore. When you think about it more, I think it really makes you more apt to pay it off. Absolutely. And that's what we did for that six or seven year span was uh, I literally did hide my head. No, I didn't literally do it, but I, I hid my head in the sand. And it was to the point where if I looked at my monthly bank statement, it caused a lot of anxiety for me to even look. So I wouldn't look because emotionally I was not ready to have that relationship with money to, to kind of have the hard look. Now it's something that we do no matter how hard it might feel. Uh, for example, we, you know, we still have times now where man, we just didn't, we didn't make as much progress this month as we wanted to. And it's easy to kind of start ignoring it and then kind of let it be something where, where you don't track the spending anymore. So it really comes down to that, that daily, weekly, monthly discipline that you can have despite what you might even be feeling emotionally at that time. Yeah. I like that comment. I wasn't emotionally ready to have this relationship and now you are. So, and look, once you start paying attention to it, you actually get a paid off. Yep. Absolutely. How important was self-education in this process for you, kind of both in the expense cutting and what are you doing now to prepare for those real estate investments? So I'm doing a lot of things. So self-education was was and is very important. Again, really having the Bigger Pockets community is a great thing. Listening to various podcasts, reading books. One of my goals for 2018 is, is to read 100 books. And so I think I'm at number 62 right now. 
And just absorbing information is important, but also putting yourself in the actual situations to learn. So I've gone to various uh, local meetups that we have around uh, Sacramento for real estate investing. Really being around David and learning from David as much as I can has also been a positive thing. So not only am I just trying to learn the information, but actually putting myself in those situations and those scenarios and building relationships with other people has been very helpful. I, I think that's a phenomenal approach to education where you're just you know absorbing as much content as you possibly can proactively and then also verifying that and learning and applying that knowledge in conversation with people who are actually doing it. No better way, I think, to learn rapidly. How does that how does this compare to your formal education? Because you have s- several degrees. You have three degrees, right? You have uh, bachelor's and then two graduate degrees. Correct. So it is completely different. Looking back, I know that I obviously need the speech language pathology degree to work in that field, mm-hmm. but the other degrees I don't need. And the reason is because I know that I could have I could have learned the same information on my own without having to go for, through formal schooling. And um, that's something that both my wife and I have learned personally over this last year to the point where we are actually deciding to place our son in a private school. He'll be in first grade this year. But this private school, it's called Acton Academy. They specifically focus on kind of stepping away from the traditional educational norms and focusing more on ideas like entrepreneurship and coming up with ideas, coming up with a product and learning at their own pace, much different than the mainstream education. So it's made such a big impact on us that we've actually stepped away from um, putting our kids through kind of the traditional industrial school where you go and they tell you what to do and you sit sit in one place all day and follow instructions the entire day. All right. So how do your friends and family react to that if versus how they reacted to the, the housing situation? So similar again, it's a mixed plate. So we get a little bit from everybody. Uh, A lot of questions we get, especially from people that work in education are, is this something that uh, is going to benefit your child? Is it accredited? What's the, what's the research statistics? What's the scholarship rate? How many are graduating from college? And so there's a lot of naysayers. This, this community, this school has been around for about 10 years. Um, and so they're, they've gained a lot of traction. They, they were originally founded in Texas, I believe. So we get a little bit of a mixed uh, bag from everybody, but also other people say they think it's a great idea and they definitely, you know, applaud us for moving that direction with our kids. Awesome. And then, and then as an individual, as an adult, I guess, do you think it would be possible to get an equivalent education to the one, to the one you're getting with your hundred books this year? Like if you went to school full time and paid 50 grand to Stanford, could you get a similar amount of learning out of the experience? Are you getting more based on the hundred books and the networking that you're going to in the, in the field of like business or real estate, I guess? Uh, I think it's similar to be honest. There, there's obviously going to be pros and cons to, to each side. I can tell you one thing. A lot of the books that I've read, a lot of them are, are similar concepts and ideas and just told in a different way. But still, the, the experience of actually getting out there, networking, getting to know people, I do think that uh, I could be just as successful without a formal education than I am with, especially when it comes to uh, working in things like real estate or if I wanted to be a doctor, absolutely not. You know, I should definitely go to a traditional school for that. Gotcha. Okay. You just said informal education and I, and a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned bigger pockets in your list of enormous, your list of places to get real estate education. And 
I wanted to share with the people who are listening to this show who maybe found us through another site other than Bigger Pockets is that there is a whole enormous website behind this podcast where you can learn how to invest in real estate. I hear from so many people who listen to the Bigger Pockets real estate podcast that David Green hosts with Brandon Turner. And they say things like, oh, I didn't know there was a website. I was listening to this podcast and all of a sudden I discovered you online. We have a blog. We have two podcasts, a video channel, webinars, and a forum where you can ask specific questions and learn how to invest in real estate the right way so you don't lose any money. You're not breaking any laws. I mean, real estate is well, so not you hard. You increase your odds of success. You can still lose money even if you do that, you, okay, if you do it all correctly, yes. right? <laughs> so you increase your odds of success. There's no guarantee you're not going to lose money. I mean, you know, the market could drop tomorrow, whatever. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Um, but, you know, real estate is not hard. It's not easy. It's work. And you can do it the right way, which makes it a whole lot easier. Or you can do it the wrong way, which makes it a whole lot harder. So I just wanted to share, if there are people listening who really are interested in real estate and don't know, biggerpockets.com is this enormous, amazing resource for learning how to invest in real estate. So end plug. Awesome. Kyle, but before we move on to the famous Florida thing, is there anything else that we should have asked you or that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to cover here in this conversation? You know, the one thing I will say is in the last kind of decade of my life, I definitely feel like I've hit some obstacles in the road where I've had different failures. And one of the books that really kind of got me uh, excited this year that I read was Failing Forward by John Maxwell. And he has a quote where he says, the difference between average people and achieving people is their perception of and response to failure. So for me, my whole mindset and kind of paradigm shift has been how I look at failure within this last decade. In the past, I used to look at failure as if it was the worst thing in the world. And now I kind of welcome it. We welcome it in our home. We welcome it with our kids. We want our kids to fail fast. We want them to fail early and we want them to fail often. So that's been probably for me, one of the biggest changes that I've seen in my financial journey. Okay. So before you read that book, the peak of your spending, you were spending, you know, eighty nine hundred and making ninety two hundred. Was your fear of failure lessening? Has it increased before reading this book and kind of, you know, putting it in words? Did that confidence, your ability to take risks, your desire to pursue your goals and dreams, and kind of do what you need, you you want to go forward, was that increasing as your financial position improved? Did that have an, an impact on your mindset to some degree? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, It didn't just change from one morning where I woke up and I said, okay, I'm feeling great. I'm going to go swim two miles across the Atlantic Ocean or whatever. Instead, it was one small step after the other and kind of stepping out and doing, uh, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who said, do one thing that's scary every day. And it was kind of like that, taking one small step at a time and then seeing some growth from it. Then taking another step and seeing growth to the point now where I'm I'm feeling more comfortable taking big steps and bigger steps and bigger steps. So it wasn't just kind of this overnight snap of the fingers where it just happened, but it was more of a kind of a slow, you know, slow pace of moving forward. Yeah, I mean, why why I do what I do, why I love this podcast and my job so much is because I believe that there's a huge correlation between the progress you make financially and the confidence that you as an individual have to pursue your passions, dreams, and and whatever it is that you want to make an impact on the world rather than maybe the career that you chose 10 years ago, right? And and that, I, that power that comes with that I think is just so important and so 
the word powerful is the same word I just used, but I'll use powerful anyways. That's, that's what, that's what this is all about, right? You move your financial position forward so that you can do the things that you want to do and that you believe will lead to a fulfilling life. And that I think is really hard to do if you're in the position that you were in a few years ago where you're spending almost everything that you make and there's not really any wiggle room. And it gets easier and easier and easier as your savings rate increases, as you pile up cash and as you tack on passive cash flow. So I hope that that plays out for, continues to play out for you uh, over the next couple of years. Absolutely. And I definitely agree. Kind of with the more growth comes more confidence. So um, that's definitely something that I'm looking forward to. And it seems like every kind of every few months, there's this new chapter that kind of opens up and we're excited to kind of walk through that together as a family. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So we are going to switch over to the famous four questions now. These are the same four questions that we ask every person on our podcast. Uh, The first question is, what is your favorite finance book? So there's definitely uh, the popular ones, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, The Richest Man in Babylon. But I'm going to give you a new one today, one that really did open up my eyes. I actually read it this year. It's one of the the books that I'm reading. Um, And it's called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And it really, she opens up your eyes to what is your relationship with money? How do you view money? And how are you interacting with money? And it's really been something to me where I've it's helped me to kind of step back and look at money more of as a tool than as something that was potentially scary or uh, or dangerous. That's fantastic. Yeah, I have not read that one. I'll have to pick it up and check it out. Yeah, I haven't heard that one either. I like these new, I mean, it's nice to have the continued books being recommended. You know, this book was recommended 47 times. Hey, I'm going to pick that up. But I also like hearing these new books that I haven't heard of before. The Soul of Money, Soul, like S-O-U-L. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, Moving on, what was your biggest money mistake? I'm going to say taking out that line of credit to uh, finance the design and landscape of our backyard when we only had about $300 in, in margin every every month. Did it look awesome. nice? It looked very nice. Yeah, it was really well done, very pretty, except the, the concrete that we put in, it was uh, that stamp concrete. So anytime it gets wet, the kids were like slipping all over the place. I felt like there was a huge liability in the backyard anytime we had kids playing in the, playing back there. So, But other than that, it was very, very pretty. They'll just bounce off of it. Yeah, exactly. What is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? My biggest piece of advice would be that it really is never too late. Part of us when we decided to kind of take this journey was it kind of, you know, we were just entering into our 30s, which is young, but, you know, you feel like you're getting older. You're not in your 20s anymore. And part of us felt like it's too late. We're not going to we're not going to get to where we want to get. And so why even start? And so my whole thing is that it's not too late to start. Uh, you can start at any time, whether you're 30, 40 or 50, because even just taking that start made a drastic change immediately for us. And how old are you now? I don't think we actually discussed 34 now. 34. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. That's great advice. Um, What is your favorite joke to tell at parties? All right. So what, what did the janitor say when he stepped out of the closet to scare some people? (sighs) I don't know. Did he rev his broomstick? Vroom, vroom, vroom. That's not a very good (laughs) guess. We'll try again later. What, what, What is it? Supplies. (laughs) Supplies. <laughs> okay. There it is. I see. <laughs> that was great. Uh, yeah. I That's thought my I was son's favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and how old is your son? He's six, and we have a two-year-old daughter. Six. Scott, six. His six-year-old son thought that was a great joke. All and right, you. All right. Well, well, let's mop this up <laughs> with the last question then. 
Oh my nice. god. <laughs> he is very quick. Scott, you are very quick, and I'm always impressed at how quick you are. Just I don't like the jokes. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, uh, under my name, Kyle Renke, R-E-N-K-E. Um, and I also have a website that I started where I kind of uh, do a little bit of blogging about financial independence, uh, finance in general, a little bit of real estate, just things that I'm learning. Um, and you can find me on those social media pages, Facebook and Instagram under my name. Okay, kylerenke.com. And we will include links to all of this in our show notes for this show, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash moneyshow37. All right, Kyle, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated it. And I love your message. It's never too late. It is never too late to start. And, you know, people who might be under $90,000 of student loan debt might feel, oh, I can't ever do this. Well, like I said last week, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So switch your mindset. Think you can. Look, Kyle did it. Kyle did it. You can do it too. Totally. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It was a lot of fun. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. All right, that was Kyle Renke from kylerenke.com. That's K-Y-L-E-R-E-N-K-E.com. Mindy, I thought that was an awesome show. What'd you think? I love Kyle's story and I love the message from the story. It's just, you can do this too. We had the couple from Planting Our Pennies on the show a couple of weeks ago and their message was, hey, this could be done by anybody as well. And you know, so often this is true. Whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. So start thinking that you can. Take the tips from this show, from episode 32, from episodes one through 36, and you know, start applying them to your life. Track your spending, make a budget, reduce your spending, you know, increase your income. There are so many ways to get this done. Yeah, and, and I think the other part of it, and I'm gonna throw out a little challenge and you know, be a little mean, I guess, for a second here, but a lot of people aren't going to do this, right? They're not going to, they're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to sell my house. I'm not going to resell my car and buy a less nice car. I'm not going to move down, downsize my house for square footage. I'm not going to have one of the spouses stay home and watch the kids to save money. I'm just not going to do any of that. And guess what? They're just not going to accumulate investable liquidity. It's just not going to happen. The only way it's going to happen is if they somehow earn a ton more money or they start a business in their extraordinarily limited free time. Most of middle class or upper middle class America that's got these two household income with the 80 to $100,000 a year per uh, working spouse and that's spending all their money just isn't going to go anywhere. And guess what? They're just not competition for you, me, Kyle, anybody else in the investing sphere. They simply will not be able to accumulate the liquidity needed to begin investing, and they'll never move towards early financial freedom. It'll take them 40 years. And that's just the fact of reality, right? Kyle chose to make these decisions and move his family towards it, not using you know, the fact that he had children you know, as an excuse, but as motivation and a way to build his, you know, create freedom for his family and himself. Right. And what you've just said is, is really mean, <laughs> but also true. I guess it's not that mean because the truth is not always pretty, but yeah, it's not going to happen if you don't do something about it. Yeah. I mean, those are drastic decisions that he made one by one over the course of 18 months that really changed his lifestyle. And I'm sure his friends and family had their comments on it. Like he mentioned, right? He was, he's talking about not everyone's going to be supportive of it and it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be scary. It's going to be a change, but it's just, if you can't increase your income, if you're not going to come into a huge chunk of liquidity and you can't reduce your spending, and you can't start a business, 
you're not going to move towards phi. There's not really any way around it. You have to do some of those things. And the most high probability way is to do, in my opinion, exactly what Kyle did here uh, and begin with cutting those expenses and preparing himself for entrepreneurship and investing. Right. And did you catch the part where he said, oh, so for six years, I didn't look at my bank statements. Was it six years? For a while, he didn't look at his bank statements. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? All they did was continue to deplete. All his debt did is continue to grow because he's not looking at them. He's not paying attention to them. He doesn't have that in his head all the time. If you are going to ignore the problem, the problem is not going to go away. No, but the good news is Kyle is an extraordinarily positive example of how to reverse that trend quickly, build some net worth, and then get prepared to rapidly accelerate towards financial independence because of his savings rate, because of the, ch- the choices he's made with his family, and because of the fact that he's self-educating 100 books in a year, 60 books already, right? He has, in my opinion, extraordinarily, an extraordinarily high probability of rapidly achieving his goal in a way that's fun and gives his family freedom and is enjoyable along the way. I will be very surprised if his income and his business do not dramatically explode over the next three to five years as a result of the savings rate he's producing and the amount of self-education that he's putting in and the networking that he's doing with his free time. Yes. And what is he doing? He's taking action. He's Mm -hmm. choosing to make a difference in his finances, and then he's acting upon that choice. And, and then a few years, everyone's going to say, oh, I could never do that because he earned so much money. You know, I, he, The guy has a, a graduate degree that he got a lot of debt for and is a speech pathologist, right? This is not like an like incredibly lucrative career. It's a good job, right? But yes. over the next couple of years, I bet you, again, his income's going to explode because what, what he's doing with his, agent, with his agent work and his investing is going to explode as he continues to read, educate, network, and take action. I mean, and then people are going to be like, oh, well, I could have done it too if I made all this money. But no, it starts here. It starts today. It started last, it started two, three years ago when he made the first big steps towards this. Anyways, right. we're rambling on here. So, no, <laughs> we're I'm rambling on. Yes. Yeah. We're having yes. a discussion that's just yes. taking a little bit longer. Yes. All right. Shall we get out of here today, Scott? Let's get out of here, Mindy. Okay. From episode 37 of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we talk to Kyle Renke from kylerenke.com. This is Mindy Jensen, over and out. The market is changing, and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.